Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Patrick Fisher, uh, who's a general partner at the Venture Capital Fund in Novia Capital and has over 30 years of financial and operating experience. He's led world-class companies like Google, McKinsey, Sprint Capital and Bell Cap. Canada to break through the complexities of hyper-growth and digital transformations. As CEO of Google from 2008 to 2015, he took an active part in Google's growth agenda and ultimately supported the creation of the alphabet structure. Patrick, an active environmentalist through his Enoch project, graduated with the MA in philosophy and politics and economics from Oxford in 1989 with a Rhodes Scholarship. A big thank you to Sridhar Ramaswamy for the connection and Deborah and Isabel from Inovia team for organizing the interview. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Rohit. Awesome. So you went from Canada to Google, and now you, you're partnered in Ovia Capital. Now, how did you get your journey into this crazy world of venture capital? After I retired from Google, I took a couple of years to travel the world. Everybody who was at the Google at the time knew of, I kind of ran around the world with an orange backpack. So I would have Googlers everywhere in the world kind of stop me in airports. And, and during that, that time it kind of made me reflect on, okay, what's the next stage of life for me? You know, you're in your mid fifties, you still have 20 years of solid work ahead of you. And to me, it was, okay, let's contribute back to Canada. That was the kind of the first kind of guiding principle. And the question then becomes, what's the best thing I can do to contribute back to the Canadian ecosystem? And so is it politics? Is it, you know, whatever it may be. After a couple of conversations with late Bill Campbell, conversations with really close friends, they basically said, you know, Patrick, if you create, you know, tens of thousands of tech job in Canada, I think that you'll have done an amazing feat for your country because you've helped and support the ecosystem that creates the wealth on which Canada kind of supports, you know, the free education, the free healthcare and everything else that we have in Canada. So I thought, you know what, VC is probably the best vehicle to do that. And that's when I was having casual conversations with friends of mine in the VC world. And they said, well, why don't you hop along with us? And I think you're going to have a good ride. And that's how I ended up square at Inovia Capital. Interesting. Let's go back to your career in Google. You work with Larry Page and Soji Bin. You know, what was the experience working with high quality founders like Larry and Soji? And how did you get on to this opportunity with Google? So how I got to the opportunity at Google, at Google were looking for, it was, you know, remember the S1, which is like, we're an unconventional company and we don't expect to be one anytime soon or whatever is the line. And so they were looking for a CFO, but much more than a CFO that just does the numbers. And they had basically done a ton of interviews and hated everybody. Okay. <laughs> and, and so they broadened the scope to outside of the U.S., and so I got a phone call. I was basically running. I had been the CFO at Bell Canada. And so I had been the CFO at Bell. I was heading the operations. I'd done a bunch of operations. I'd been a CFO a number of times in my career. So they kind of phoned me and they said, hey, we're looking for somebody who's somewhat unconventional. It would be a great CFO for us. Would you come and meet Eric, Larry, and Sergey? And that's how I got the opportunity. I guess I'm sufficiently unconventional that they kind of hired me. And then what was it to work with them? It was amazing. I mean, that's the short answer. And and it was not only Larry and Sergey, it was really a triumvirate with Eric. That dynamic of these two founders and this great CEO together really was an amazing cocktail. And it really 
taught me to think big. I mean, they really did. You know, we used to have these kind of simple rules of engagement at the executive committee when we looked at product reviews or new spaces in which to explore. You know, we would think of, hey, you know, can this be a product that can serve a billion users? And if it can't use a billion users, probably not worth our time, which was an amazing high bar to pass, right? And yet, if you use that bar to say a billion users was really a signal for, is it a consequential product for the planet, for everybody, for humanity? And so and you look at 2008 until 2015, when I was there, you know, you have the launches of Android and you have the launches of Map and you have the launches of, you know, what is the Google Suite today? You have the launch of Street View and you have the launch of Chrome and Chrome OS. And I mean, these are all amazing platforms that actually fulfilled those visions, right? These super high bar. And then the other side of it was, hey, let's do cool stuff that's not evil. All right, this famous don't be evil. I think it, it really permeated, let's do things that are actually useful to the world, that makes the world a better place. And I think that these two things have been really driving our agenda at Google at the, at the time. And it, and it, it has just attracted the, not only the very best, but the very, very best of the engineering community of the, I mean, the entire administration, whatever it be, like lawyers and, and people in finance and otherwise, I just, it just, a, it was a true magnet because of these two things, do big things, tech enabled huge things and don't be evil. I think it's a pretty potent cocktail. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Google is, is one of the most important firms in the, in the last two decades or so. And you worked in, in Google in last teams. Um, how did Google give the team a sense of duty to work for the Googlers? And how did that transition happen from the start of the company till, till now where, you know, the tens of thousands and you know, hundreds of thousands of people working for Google? How can a founder build a company which can outlive this vision? Obviously, the business model itself is critical. If you have a mousetrap that just fuels on itself with a lot of network effects, it just creates this incredible momentum. I think at Google, certainly the years I was there, we were growing incredibly fast and we had a lot of resources. So the, the trick is to find where is the right tension so that you don't waste resources, but you really put a lot of resources in the few bets that you think really can make a big difference and that will excite the organization. And so for us, it was an amazing, like you're on this treadmill where, okay, we're going to build a Chrome team. That's, and then when you look at the aspiration, you need hundreds and thousands of engineers in order to build the aspiration that you want. And, and then you put the right OKRs and the right milestones. And, and on the other side, as an operations, because I was also like, I was the CFO, but you know, I was responsible for, you know, people operations, real estate, transport, you know, food, massage therapists, like everything, right? So you, you end up with, okay, you need to be able to show up with all these engineers and find the very best of the best and make sure that they are all, kind of, we used to talk about the business, right? You need the people with the right values, the right mindsets. So building an organization so that you don't end up in the ditch, but in fact is a self-fueling, accelerating engine of innovation and the right values is quite a bit of work because at some point you hit scale where you can't just know everybody. And how do you ensure that the culture stays the same and true to the values? It makes obligations such as for myself, I remember during my days at Google, 
I would be on the road months of the year because you need to go to India and you need to go to Singapore and you need to go to France and you need to, you need to meet the team. They need to see the executive team so that they can have the conversations. Like there's so much video we'll do. They want to hear you say, no, no, no. If there's a problem, right, you have an obligation to raise your hand and, and bring it to us. That fuels the culture. Or if you see an amazing opportunity, you have the same obligation to bring this opportunity to your managers. And like, we want to stay a flat organization, which we did for the entire time I was there. So these are some of the magic tricks that massive audacious agendas with the right engineering leads, engineering led company, and then a massive support organization behind them to deliver. When I left Google, I mean, it, it, I, I, that's why in the two years after I left Google, I would be anywhere in the world with my orange backpack because there was a bit of a joke around it. People would stop me like in, in the middle of Rajasthan and say, hey, Patrick, how are you today? And they had already left by two years, but they just wanted to say hi because that's how close we felt to the community. And that is something that's very difficult to build. And founders, if you can build that, they have a magic wand for their companies. Interesting. And you know, you've been in the early days of Google. What were some of the biggest lessons in acquiring the best talent? There's a really, really simple lesson in, in people operations. And you've heard that many times. It just happens to be true and people forget it. A players will hire A players. B players will hire C players and D players. And there's that line right there. And if you start hiring B players, and people always used to tell me, you know, I, I mean, there's a terrible image of, you know, I prefer to have bad breath than no breath because I got to close my books at the end of the month. So I'm okay to live with Sally or Jeff or whatever. And I'm like, no, get rid of Sally or Jeff, get a temporary consultant to put a patch on, go and hire yourself an A player. These are tough decisions that as you grow your organizations, you need to be ruthless about the quality of the people you bring in. And that makes a difference not at the moment, not the next quarter, but it makes a difference over you know, the years to come with the momentum of your organization. And that is a killer issue that everybody fumbles on. And by the way, when you think you got an A player and for whatever reason it doesn't work, you got to move fast. I've hired, I've made, and by the way, when that happens, it's on you. You've made the mistake. And so don't point at anybody else. You've made the mistake recognize it, wear it, but act. The person is not working. Just go and see them. Tell them, I'm sorry, it's not working. It's an error. We've made an error. You've made an error. I've made an error, right? We'll take care of you, but get them out of the organization so that you, people can start breathing immediately. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, I want to go back to Innovia Capital. What are the thesis for Innovia Capital and how do you think about portfolio construction? So for us, because Innovia is really focused on Canada, that's the anchor. So think of, I'm going to make a really simple image in your mind. Innovia Capital kind of owns everything in Canada in that they see everything. They also are very connected to the Canadian diaspora in Silicon Valley. So if you were at Kitchener-Waterloo or UFT or University of Montreal and you ended up in Silicon Valley, we probably know you. And then, so we have a big link there. And then we're also in Europe with a great presence in the London office where we have the advantage of being able to take very specific companies into North America from Europe that we think are amazing. The strategy at Inovia is if you're in Canada, we can write a check of $50,000 for a napkin after a good dinner, all the way to we can raise a quarter of a billion dollars for your growth strategy. 
in Europe, we only do growth. So in Europe, we, we don't do, we do angel investments for networking purposes, but we don't do A or early B series. It's once, you, you know, if your mouse trap catches mice, we'll listen to your story, but you have to have product market fit. And then in California, we follow the Canadian diaspora and we'll do everywhere from seed to more, depending on the opportunity. But it really is a Canadian diaspora focus, if you wish. The areas where we, in, where we invest, typical B2B SaaS, some B2C, and some of this B2C will be in areas of travel, retail, areas where we have a lot of expertise as a firm. And that is the core element. And then the other piece that actually differentiate us is Inovia has a, lot, has a lot in its partnership, a lot of operators and founders. One of our founders has built a bunch of businesses, sold them, right? We have just recruited Steve Woods to become our operating uh, partner for tech. And Steve, had, had not before being the lead of the engineering for Canada at Google, so a longtime friend of mine, he was a serial entrepreneur. And then there's people like me who built a bunch of companies and operated them. So we bring just as much kind of financial acumen that you would expect of a VC, but you also deal with people who have all of the marks uh, and the, the dirty fingernails of having built a bunch of companies. So there's a higher level of empathy for the founders and we can add a lot more value operationally. Like we've been in their shoes like many times. And if for whatever reason on the technical aspect, we don't know because we didn't do it ourselves, we know the guy or the woman who's done it as well. And so we bring immense value on the operating side of the investment in addition to the financial side. But what do you think is the right level of diversification? How many investments could you put across different ecosystems in one single year? I think of two teams, early stage team and growth team. All right. So the early stage team, like a typical fund, 200, 250 million US dollars, and you'll invest in 25 companies, something like that. The growth fund, you know, half a billion roughly in size, US dollars, and 12 companies. And so the three partners at the growth fund will each end up with four companies each. So that's basically you make each partner will make an investment every nine months, which is a wonder. So for the growth fund, it's wonderful in that you can be really picky. I only have to do one investment a year. Now, when I make that investment, I'm committed to this investment for like seven to 10 years to grow them because they're going to be a growth story, right? And then on the early stage team, they obviously have much more, like they're much more in the eight to 10 per fund, right? Per partner. And then from there, they kind of manage, you know, their winners and the ones that are more struggling. So core and non-core assets. And they will invest, you know, in consequence, more like three deals a year, four deals a year, right? Per partner. So very different dynamic between early stage and growth stage. And what do you think about new entrants like Tiger and, and, and SoftBank? which are working, even like Anderson Horowitz, which are working more like a, like a hedge fund. And they also have their own, you know, seed funds. How does, you know, we are to think about these new VC funds? I think that if you think of what I've just said a minute ago, there's really two fundamental strategies out there. One is you have a $50 billion fund and you essentially spray and pray. You have, you're almost like one of these, it's a very different nuance, but it's a little bit like a PE firm, right? I have my stencil, you hit my stencil, you tick the boxes, I write you the check, call me back if it works. They have some resources as well to throw in to help you, but there's no emotional commitment. They're really running portfolios. 
And then you have smaller players like ourselves, which have these tailored strategies, which I would argue, one, is because we have expertise in the field itself, two, because we're actually committed to them, and then three, because we have the same, if not much better networks of operators and financiers, you come back to this issue of fundamentally, assume the world is a wash in cash, right? So assume that for a minute, because that's the case today. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be true two years from now, but for the last few years, you know, you've heard all these stories of people showing up with term sheets without having seen the management team, right? So that's a pretty world of wash and cash kind of environment. So, and now assume that every one of these term sheets are the same. So on what basis now do you actually pick your VC? And I would argue that you'll have just as much cash tomorrow morning from Inovia if you're successful than you'll have if you have it from Tiger. So that's not the issue. You like success stories, they get their funding, right? So then the question is, who do you want at the boardroom and who do you want to be able to call every week to say, hey, I got this, I got that. I just need 15 minutes. Can you put me in contact with so-and-so, right? I'm trying to, and, and to that, I think is a very fundamentally different strategy between these small tailored players like we are versus the Tigers. Just be careful what you wish for, I guess is the point because Tiger will be right, the first one to write you the check. They'll also be the first one to dump you because you're not in their distribution, and Inovia, we're committed to our companies. Got it. And how does Inovia Capital look at their investment decision-making process while making investments? Does the general partner get on to make all their decisions? I just wanted to understand what's the decision-making process there. It's very much run as a partnership. The early stage team, three partners, uh, four. So think of three to four partners. Same thing for the growth team, three partners. And the way we do it is we take decisions as a partnership. We don't have these committees. The beauty of a small firm like Inovia is I don't have to go to a committee of 15 and pitch my stuff and everybody's read the documents and then they decide, none of that. We're three. And so we sit down together, we review our pipeline, we look at what is promising, we agree on the priorities of where to actually put our resources, we do deep dives. Most of the companies we'll invest in, we already know them. So I'll give you the corollary of that. We never fund a company that shows up at our doorstep and say, hey, we have a process, are you interested? We just say, no. Or we'll take access to your data room, but it'll be for the next round so that we get to know you if we're interested in this space. So we have this process by which we, f- we funnel and go through the opportunities that we have. We decide where to invest time in the companies that are prospectively interesting. We take the time to meet with management. And then we report together as partners and we say, and then when something gets hot and we say, okay, we're going to go and run after this one and we're going to take a you know, I run at it and we're going to either preempt or we know they're going to be a process so we'll be well prepared for the process. In all of these cases, we always bring back to the team and the three partners will decide together. So when I have a success, it's not my success. It's the success of the partnership. When I have a failure or a struggle, it's the struggle of the partnership. And so we're all bound together in that way. And I find that, and by the way, I have to admit, even personally, and you should, you know, if I, I bet if you ask Dennis and Chris, and I know that the early stage team runs exactly the same process, the wisdom of having other people next to you to say, have you really thought, so we always have a black hat and a red hat, right? And you're like, have you really thought about this, Patrick? Like, have you thought of this and that and that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Let me come back to you. And it's good. It's so healthy to have people push back on you and ask you the really smart, tough questions. That's the beauty of a great partnership. And so we benefit from that. 
That's interesting. And I was wondering, is it possible to build ownership across rounds? Is it possible to build ownership of 20% in a company in the, in the early stage? In the early yeah. stage? Yeah, I think so. There's still a lot of places where you can, on an A round, you can actually take a 15, 20% partnership on depending on, especially when you have a lot of expertise, right? Because you're willing to actually put a bit more on the table. You're willing to kind of organize and have a, a game plan that you know, well, if it works. So you're willing to commit more, no doubt especially where you have more expertise. I mean, it's it's a little tougher nowadays with the kind of valuations we see, right. uh, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible. Got it. And what do you think about reserve allocations? Does Inovia Capital look at reserve allocation in, in, a, in a startup they have invested in, in, in the early stage? We're pretty ruthless about, we always keep dry powder and we have a significant amount of dry powder, but it's very selective. So let's let make the, the case. We make a first investment, on the second investment, we would never agree de facto to do a pro rata. It's never a given, ever. So you have to prove to yourself, do you want to triple down? And if you don't want to triple down, like the pro rata should be an exception, not a rule. And you have to have a really good reason to do pro rata. You have to force yourself to build conviction on the thesis if you wish and really stress test it. We do have dry powder. We think it's important to have dry powder to fuel our, our winners. And we have a pretty disciplined process as to be wary of the pro rata. <laughs> I guess that's the best rule. And if a founder is trying to build a company now, you know, what, how, how should founders look at starting right and looking at the diverse, diversity in their, uh, in their employees and in the culture? I think that question, Roy, is critical to today's world. Everybody, like everywhere you read about this ESG stuff, right? Environmental, social, and governance. Right. Um, diversity and inclusion is like this big spotlight on the world right now, and especially in tech. Right. And, and my, my message to the founders is you have, as a founder, a complete unique opportunity. And I will argue you have an obligation that because you're starting and you're small, you have all the flexibility in the world to show the world that it is possible and not only possible, but a requirement to be a diverse company. And that, by that, I mean, you know, a reflection of women and men, they're 50-50 in the world. They should be 50-50 in your company. If you're in Toronto, right? I mean, I'm picking Toronto because it's a city I know well. There's every color, race, religion, ethnic, like Toronto is like the melting pot of everybody shows up with their dog over there, right? right. And so if you're in Toronto in a startup and you're all white dudes, like it's criminal. Like it makes no sense. And not all that, you're, you're, you're going to lose because you're not going to have the best talent. You're going to be myopic in your views anyways. And so, but it's true everywhere now. So you have an obligation to actually show the way. And by the way, when you're 50 employees and you have a bit of a, you're like you're a bit out of kilters, it just takes you to hire another five or six and you're back in balance. I can guarantee you this. If you're 500 employees and you're 80% men and 20% women, you will never, ever get out of your hole. Because if to get out of your hole, you have to stop hiring men for like a year. And that's not going to happen. And so you have a unique opportunity, every one of you listening to this podcast that is starting a company or has this company with less than 100 people or a couple hundred people, you have an opportunity and obligation to show the world that it's doable and not only is doable, but it's way cooler. And if you do that, then 
in 10 years time, it'll be, it'll be game over. We'll be done. The, this DNI stuff, we'll have other issues, but at least that one will have, our generation has to show that way. Interesting. And, and what are your thoughts on capital allocation and burn when it comes to early stage founders, especially you know, if they're working remotely and they don't need to spend on office and, and travel? What advice do you have for, for founders there? I mean, look, it's pretty simple. Whatever you can reallocate from T&E and office into engineers, you do that. And the flip side of that is you have to be mindful of people's quality of life because what you don't want is a bunch of mercenaries. So people that will, you know, if they get $3 an hour more next door, then they just flip company because now the switching costs are super low, right? There is a bit of investment to do to make sure that you have a strong culture, to make sure that people have the tools and the means to be very productive. People tend to forget as well. I remember that when uh, everybody laughed at us, when I, at Google, we had, I joking, I didn't jokingly say, I said seriously that we had all these massage therapists. And at the beginning of the interview and uh, the podcast, right? And it was very serious for us at Google. If you're coding and that's your life, you know, the carpenter tunnel issues and all of the issues of bad backs and they're very serious. And, and, and so it is important to invest in your human capital, like all of the people that work with you closely and, and, uh, and make sure that they're healthy, make sure that they're happy, make sure that they drink whatever cool it is yours about the culture that you want. And so there's an investment to do there for sure. So I think there's a bit of a balance there. Yes, you have a lot more flexibility. So take advantage of flexibility. Don't forget to invest in your people because they really are, you know, the backbone of the company you're building. You know, I, I just want to quickly do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Well, my business, my best business book. It's a really old book. So I, I'm going to age myself here. I needed to learn to manage people and how to run a good large organization. And the best book I read on that was a Jack Welsh book from GE called Winning. And it's actually one chapter in that book, although there's a couple of really good chapters. And there's one chapter in that book that it, I think it's called, It's Not About Yourself. And that chapter encapsulates what a great manager is. We'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started your career in, in the venture capital, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? In venture capital specifically, I don't know if there's anything different I would do. I think I, I picked the right team. That's 90% of the issue. If you got the right team, life is good, man. I mean, <laughs> I can tell you, you know, I had this and that and the other, but and I just started three, four years ago. So if you started three, four years ago, then, you know, Give me time. Ask me that question, you know, 10 years from now, and I'll probably have a different answer. Got it. And do you have any favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Strava. Strava is my best tool online because it's when I disconnect and I just go and exercise and I go, I'm, a, I'm an avid cyclist and triathlete. And, and when I'm on Strava, I take a pause from the world of crazy VC and I just, I'm with a community that just runs cycles or swims or and to me, it's just so important to disconnect. That to me is just as important as being connected the rest of the time with all the other tools that you talked about. I think this is the first time somebody talked with Strava. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, <laughs> Patrick, what, what are the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Inovia? If we have a website at Inovia, I mean, to me, it's pretty easy, right? Because it's pipichette. Pipichette at Inovia.vc. You'll always reach me. I, I read everything. At Google, I read every email I received. And here I, I read every email. If you write me, I will read your email. 
Namaskar. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. But it's, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I, I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Roy, it was brilliant. Thank you so much. And we need to thank Sridhar for connecting us. Thanks again for the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.